All right, so we've been walking our way and working our way through the book of Joshua. Uh, we spent almost two years going through the book of Exodus, and uh, boy, I'd say that was amazing. We learned a lot, but the book of Joshua has been incredible. So last week we were in Joshua chapter number 2, verses 14 through 16, and in that short little chunk of verses we heard about a woman named Rahab, and she had asked for a true token from some messengers that had arrived in her city that were bringing a message that the world, that the city was going to be destroyed. And what happened was Rahab responded and asked them to give her a true token, give us a promise to protect our family. And their response to that true token was last week. And that message was called a promise of life. And in that message, a promise of life, what they did was they told her, hey, look, we'll protect you as long as you will maintain and do what we, what we ask of you. You need to be consistent. They, they said it this way. They said, our life for yours. That was the phrasing that they used. And what we looked at last week was the fact that in that phrase, our life for yours, what we actually saw was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, a picture of what we're celebrating today, His life for ours. And we saw this beautiful imagery. And what we find in Scripture is God teaches things in different levels. There's things that are historically taught, telling us what actually took place, but also teaching us a devotional principle. How do we apply it to our life? And then there's the, the doctrinal principle, which is showing us much bigger picture of what God actually intends. So when we read Scripture, we see it in different levels. We understand different things. So as we look at this promise that she, that she asked for, they gave her this promise. And this promise was directly to her, yes. But prophetically, it was pointing to the coming of the Lord. And then we looked at the fact that bottom line was she actually there was another promise involved there where she had a desire to know God. And what happened was they wanted her to know the Lord. They had a desire and a burden for her soul. But what we found was the fact that God's boundless love was pictured in these men, their willingness to be there for her. But we also saw was the incredible faith of Rahab. Because you got to realize in this situation, Rahab only has two men that have come and have given her this, this message. She's not seen the Israelite army of hundreds of thousands just over the Jordan River. She's not seen this powerful God that she's heard about. She's just simply heard stories. So the faith of Rahab to believe in two men that she does not know and that have given her no proof and realistically are getting ready to run off and leave her. <laughs> They're getting ready to take off and she'll be by herself. Not to mention believing also in a God that she does not know. So we see that her faith is being stretched to its limits. At the same time, realize the fact that the city of Jericho knows that the Israelites are coming. And what they're doing is they're amassing their forces to defend themselves. So here she is, having just spoken to two strangers who offered her no proof. She did not know. She has that, that conversation. Now she looks around her and sees the city rallying for this amazing battle, all the soldiers and the battlemen and the armory and all that stuff, and she looks at those things, and what she's got to do, she's got to say, look, am I going to trust what I see, believing that this is more powerful? Am I going to trust what these two men promised me? Because they said God was going to come, and they said destruction was going to come. Am I going to trust in this that I see, or am I going to trust in what I believe? And what we see is a beautiful picture, and the fact that she denies what she sees. She denies what her reality speaks to her. And she clings to the truth of what she believes, right? And that is a picture for you and I. The Bible says we're to walk by faith and not by sight, Amen. right? That means my, my circumstances don't determine my faith. Now, the most problem with most of us is we walk by, by sight and not by faith. We allow our fear to control the decisions that we make. Many of us every day are fearful of things. Many times things we can't control. Who's ever been worried about something that you knew you could not control? 
<laughs> right? We have no control over it, yet we choose to worry about it. And fear can take a hold of our life. But what we see in this is beautiful imagery is the fact that she is. There's a verse, Hebrews 11, 1 says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Right? The substance of things hoped for, but the evidence of things not seen. Right? That is trusting in something we don't see, but we can believe and trust in our hearts. And as these spies now understand Rahab's up on the, they've given her the promise. They gave it to her up and they're on the wall of Jericho with her. But now they've been lowered down to the ground and now they're whispering back up to her. And they're relaying some information. And what she's telling, what they're telling her is they're saying, you know, we gave you that oath, that promise, but it's got some qualifiers. There's some things attached to what we told you. There's some qualifiers. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at those qualifiers in our message this morning, which is called Blameless Before God. Joshua chapter 2, verse 17 through 20. It says, The men said unto her, We will be blameless of this thine oath which thou hast made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, that thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread. And this is the very same one that she lured them down from the window. In the window which thou didst let us down by, and thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy father's household home unto thee. And it shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of thy house into the streets, his blood shall be upon his head, and we will be guiltless. And whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be upon our head, if any hand be upon him. And if thou utter this our business, then we will be quit of thine oath, which thou hast made us to swear. So after making their promise up on the roof, now they're communicating to her and they're saying, hey, guess what? There's some instructions attached to that oath that we made to you. We said, yes, you'll be protected. But as we just saw, they gave some, some qualifiers. So the first thing we see about this oath is that it has conditionality. There are conditions attached to their promise. As they said, we will be blameless. Look, we're not going to be accountable for this oath if you don't tie the red cord in the window. And if the people are not inside of the house when this destruction comes, if they're not inside, guess what? That's not on us. Because we're telling you what you need to do. Back in Joshua 2.14, we saw the first indicator of the conditionality of this. We saw in Joshua 2.14, it says, And the men answered her, Our life for yours, if, if ye utter not this our business. Look, they said, look, as long as you don't tell anybody, we'll keep our word. And what we're doing now is we're going to move into more of that conditionality as they're doing this. Now listen, understand, she's already done a lot. I mean, goodness gracious, she's not only listened to them, she heard their story, she brought them into her home, she's risked everything, so she's done a lot. And now they're going, oh, there's some other things that you need to do. Now she could be thinking, look, have I not, have I not done enough? Do you see where you are? Do you see I lowered you out of my window? you see I've risked everything that I own? Have I not done enough for you guys? And we would think frustration by that. We might think, you know, well, hey man, a promise is a promise. You guys said you were going to watch out for her. Well, she doesn't tell anybody, but now they're adding things to it. And we go, is that fair? Is it fair to have conditions and a promise? Yes. And it's actually not only is it fair, but it's biblical. It's the way God functions. And I'm going to show you where this is. If we look in 2 Chronicles 7.14, notice the wording that God uses. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. So we see that their forgiveness, their healing, and their restoration, they're all, they're all conditional. God makes a promise, but He says, but you'll need to do your part, right? Mark eleven twenty six. 26, God says this, But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. 
Listen, if you don't, then guess what? So this conditionality is in obedience, but it's also in disobedience. It goes on both sides. And what I want to do is I'm going to give you an example where Jesus is going to talk about the conditionality of salvation, receiving Him. And He's going to do this. This is actually going to be in a place called Capernaum. Now what's happened prior to this happen is actually Jesus has just fed the 5,000. We've all heard the story of the loaves and the fishes, right? They ate the fish sandwiches. Everybody's excited. And then Jesus and the disciples, they had across the Sea of Galilee. And the people that they just fed, guess what? So Jesus goes this way across the water. Well, that crowd goes around. So when they arrive in Capernaum, this giant crowd shows up. They're like, whoa! So everybody's there to hear, man. Let's hear the good news. Let's hear some more exciting stuff. So Jesus says in John 6.35, He says, And Jesus saith unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So he gives that statement, and they're like, whoa, there's a qualifier there. There's conditions in there, right? But then this is the conversation that follows in John 6, 40 through 54. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. When you see that term, the last day, that is pointing, always pointing prophetically to the second coming of the Lord. You'll see it time and time again throughout Scripture. So prophetically pointing to that, verse 41, the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Okay, they're going, whoa, 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 what, 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 what did he say? Did you hear that? And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother that we know? Isn't that the kid from Nazareth that everybody knows? How is it then he saith, I came down from heaven? Don't we know that boy? And just Jesus therefore say, answered and said unto them, Murmur not amongst yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall, all, they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore hath heard and hath learned of the Father, cometh unto me. Those that are seeking God, God will bring them. Not that any man hath seen the Father. No human seen the Father, save he which is of God. That's him. He hath seen the Father. He said, look, I know God, because guess what I am? Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. As we're going to take communion today, as we're going to take the Lord's Supper today, we're going to take that bread. And I want you to understand, Jesus is teaching way back here, way before that Last Supper. He's teaching here that he is the bread. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. Speaking of Moses. And what he says, look, guys, those, they ate bread, and it was physical bread. But what I'm going to bring to you is not a physical bread. It's a spiritual bread. Mm -hmm. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. Amen. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. For the, and the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life mm -hmm. of the world. Pointing to what's to come. Amen. Realize that the disciples don't know what's to come. No one knows what's to come. They're hearing this and trying to figure out what it is he's saying. He's telling them exactly what's going to happen. The Jews therefore strove against him, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're like, what? We're supposed to eat this guy? We're supposed to become cannibals? Ugh. Then Jesus said to them, verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man. Notice he doesn't explain it. He just keeps right on rolling, right? He says, and except ye eat the flesh of the, eat the, flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye shall have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And we read this and we go, well, that sounds just like a crazy way to communicate. I mean, who talks like that? 
But understand, he knows who he's talking to. He's talking to a Jewish audience. And guess what? But the Jewish audience, when they thought, when they understood the principle of, of receiving something and taking it to heart and making it something that they believed, it was considered to be consumed. It was talked about as in eating. We see it in Scripture. Ezekiel 3.3 3, it says this, And he saith unto him, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat and fill thy bowels with this roll. He's talking about a scroll, the word of God. Listen to this. He says, That I give thee. Then did I eat, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. So we see that the Word of God, when consumed, the way it's talked about here, when it's consumed, when it's received, it is sweet. And we qualify that. Psalm 119, 103 tells us this. How sweet are thy words, speaking of God, unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. He said, look, I'm receiving the Word of God. When I eat that Word of God, it's sweet when I receive it. But at the same time, know also that sometimes when we, we receive the Word, like the idea of this, forgiveness. Man, that sounds good. Yes, forgiveness. Yes, I'm going to forgive. Then somebody really wrongs you. And suddenly forgiving's not as easy. Right. Because listen to this in, in Revelation 10, 9. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book, God's word. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. Boy, yeah, taking that idea, but application sometimes can be difficult. So we see that receiving God's Word, receiving God, we can literally, by faith, right, by faith receiving Him. Notice in John 1.14, God teaches us a great principle about the Word. Remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, the bread is my flesh which I give. Listen John 1.14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So it tells us right there that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Word was Jesus Christ. And He says that my flesh, right? So we receive the Word of God. We receive the truth of who He is. We are in virtually, spiritually consuming Him, making Him a part of who it is that we are by faith. And in this discourse, he says, he gives the qualifier, he gives the condition. Listen to this. He says this, If any man, if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. Verse 51, And that bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. I will receive you if you will receive me. And what you find is the fact that with the religious crowd, Certainly back here in the, in the days of, of this religious group. Listen in verse 52. What did they say? He gave this spiritual example. What happens with people that are overly spiritual is they can't figure out to separate between what's spiritual and what's literal. So what happens is they hear a spiritual concept that Jesus shares. They take it literally instantly. They said, right, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? We've got to be cannibals. But think about this. Nicodemus, who is this powerful man of God, a man of the Sanhedrin, he sits down with Jesus and Jesus lays out to him. He says, you must be born again. And he tells him this, and listen to his response, John 3, 3 verses 3 through 4. Jesus answered and saith unto him, Verily I say unto you, say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's talking about a spiritual birth. There is a physical birth. We are born, no doubt. We went from being inside of our mother to outside of our mother. It was such a dramatic thing that they gave us a little piece of paper with some little footprints on it, right? And they signed it and said, This was the time when you were born. You have your birth certificate. It was a dramatic thing. Well, the Bible says that there's a spiritual birth. A spiritual birth. But this is the response that Nicodemus gives from that spiritual birth. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
He's obviously not talking about that physically, but that's what Nicodemus takes it that way. And in our world today, guess what? The religious crowd is doing the same thing, but what they've done is they've turned it around. And what they do is those things that are intended to be literal, that God writes in His Word, they've been twisted and turned and made spiritual. We go to the book of Revelations, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ pointing to the future. This is what's going to happen to this planet. He lays it all out. And what happens today in the spiritual or in the religious crowd? It's become apocalyptic literature. And it's all just figurative. It's all just a bunch of, a bunch of concepts or, or symbolism. So we look back as we look at our messengers and we look at Rahab, right? One part of that message, one part of what they did and what this, this story with her that I want to focus on is that red cord. That red cord. Now we know that that cord was what they lowered the disciples, or the lowered the messengers down from the window. And we saw last week that what's pictured in that message, that cord, the Bible talks about that scarlet. Scarlet is a picture of sin. Okay? It represents two things. It represents sin and it represents the salvation of God. If we look at it as sin, understand, when she lowered them out of the window, what was it that brought these men of God, what brought this, this message of salvation to earth was sin. But now what we find is this cord is going to picture something else. It's going to be picturing something beautiful. It's going to be picturing the idea of salvation, this scarlet thread. And what she was to do is she was supposed to tie it in her window. And when Joshua and the forces of God would arrive to bring judgment upon this city, they would look and see that one place that one red marker and wherever that was, that was going to be safe. And anybody in their household, they had to make sure everybody had to be inside the house, right? And understand, at that point in time, destruction would pass over their home. And as I read that and as I looked at that, it kept jumping out because we spent a year and two years in Exodus, for goodness sakes. I know Exodus pretty well. I still have a lot to learn, but understand. So it made me think back in Exodus. Man, there's something that seems very familiar. And we think back to Exodus and there's a story there that I think you'll figure out where I'm going. Exodus 12, verses 21 through 21, says this, 27. It says, And Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. What we saw in the Exodus story, which is so incredible, is the fact that God is pointing thousands of years into the future of the coming of His Son. There would be a Passover. A lamb would give its life. Its blood would be the very thing that would offer salvation to any who would follow the instructions. God's instructions were, listen to this, verse 22, And you shall take a, a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lentil and the two side posts with the blood that in the basin, and none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. He says, look, you need to make sure you paint that blood outside of the house. Mark your home as it will be protected and it will be safe because of the red marker that's on it. And make sure everybody's in the house because if they're not, they're in big trouble. What did the messengers tell her this exact same thing? Make sure everybody is in the house. Because remember, Jericho is a picture of the world. Egypt is a picture of the world. And here we see the saving grace of God, the love of God, offering a conditional way out. If you'll do what I tell you, you will be safe. Verse 23, for the Lord, Jehovah, and it's L-O-R-D, all caps, Jehovah, the Lord Jesus, will pass through to smite the Egyptians, a picture of the world. And when he seeth the blood unto the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in under your house to smite you. 
And you shall observe this thing as for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you according as he hath promised you that ye, that ye, that ye shall keep this service. So what he's saying is, look, guess what? As you're going to be delivered, as you're going to experience this unbelievable thing, and you're going to witness destruction come upon this entire land, but you're going to find that, you know what? You're going to be miraculously protected. What we're going to do is you're going to do this service. This Passover service is going to be a memorial to remember that moment. It's a picture pointing, a foreshadowing of the coming of the Lord. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshipped. Deliverance from judgment by way of a sacrificial lamb. John 129. John the Baptist is out. He sees Jesus coming. He says this the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God which cometh to take away the sin of the world. It's all tied together and it's thousands of years of separation. There's a consistency, guys. This Bible, man. It is unbelievable how it is all designed and interlaced because it is written by God through the hands of men, inspired by God. So the Passover lamb, this display in their homes would deliver them the same way that Rahab will deliver her home through a display at the window, but simply because she followed the instructions. He said, here is the condition. Here's the condition. You do what I tell you, and guess what? I will come through for you. Amen. And we will see Amen. that He will come through for her. Amen. Because it was the cord. If the cord was not in the window, guess what? All bets are off. They'd face destruction like anybody else. The same way the Israelites. If they'd have said, you know what? This sounds ridiculous. Paint blood over the door. I mean, what, what's the purpose? Could have somebody done that? Yes. And guess what? Destruction would have come. There's conditionality to salvation. And we think about that, well, what about for us? What about for me? Is there conditionality salvation? Yes. Not based upon once you have it, it's not conditional. God says, look, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're saved, you're saved. God saved your soul for all of eternity. He saved you from all future sin. Because understand, when God looks at our life, He doesn't see it as where you are today. He sees your entire lifespan. He knows when you're born and when you're going to die. He's seen everything. So the things I have not done wrong, which I guarantee it will be something tomorrow. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm sure I'm going to mess up somehow. God's already seen it. So when Jesus paid the blood, paid the price on the cross, He paid the price for tomorrow. Amen. The ones I have not done yet. Because God knows my life. And He paid for all of it. And what happens is here we have an opportunity for us to receive the glory and the grace and the beauty of God. But the salvation does have conditions. Because understand, Jesus paid the price on the cross. But then you and I have a part of it as well. There's a gentleman. Actually, he was a jailer, a Philippian jailer. And this man, was he, he saw God do miraculous work. And he's about to kill himself. And Paul and Silas stop him. They go, no, 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 don't, don't kill yourself. He's seen God do some incredible things. And he's just like, whoa. <laughs> your God is real. And he's, he's overwhelmed by what he sees. And this is his response. He says, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What do I need to, need to do to be saved? What works do I need to do? Because if we come from a religious background, you think you've got to do a whole bunch of stuff. You've got to live a certain life and do certain things and follow a certain bunch of rules. And if you'll do these things, somehow you're going to become uh, uh, worthy of God's salvation. No. The point is we're not worthy of salvation. None of us are. Amen. 
The Bible says, look, you know, all of sin comes short of the glory of God. God sees in our hearts. He knows what we've thought. And we can sit and tell ourselves that we're pretty good people. But if we searched our hearts, deeply searched our hearts, because we know what we thought. We know what we've wanted to do in our hearts and minds. We know what we've imagined. The times that we've thought about people that we wanted to strike back and the anger that's lived within us. The rage that's lived within us. And he says, you know what? What must you do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. You will not work your way to salvation. You will not earn your way to salvation. You will never be good enough. None of us are. None of us are. The Bible says that our righteousness appears filthy rags before the Lord. Amen. You know why? When I go give money to somebody and I'm trying to, and I, man, that guy's in need, and I go give him money, part of me wants someone to see it. Part of me wants somebody to go, man, I hope this shows up on Instagram. Boom, look at that good Samaritan. Right? I'm not doing it because I had this love in my heart that I just desire for him. I'm doing it because I want something out of it. It's going to make me feel better about me. And we go home going, you know what? Good day today. Great job. Righteousness. Righteousness. We're doing it for God, not for ourselves. But because we're selfish by nature, we don't. So here we see, as we celebrate our Savior today, mm, understand the fact that God, these Israelites, if they were not in the home, they would not be protected. There was conditionality to it. Showing us, guess what? Salvation is offered to the whole wide world. All they simply had to choose was to follow what God told them to do. He gave them guidelines. Romans 10.13 says this, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. It's a promise. It doesn't say might be saved. It doesn't say could be saved. It says shall be saved from the God of the universe who breaks no promise, who cannot lie. He says that is the reality, but you must do your part. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. So the first thing we see is that this oath has got conditionality. But the second thing we see is it's got something called accountability. Accountability. Verse 19 says this, And it may be, and it shall be, that whosoever will shall go out of the doors of thy house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head, and we will be guiltless. Notice this. There's accountability of the individual. And whosoever shall be and be with thee in the house, and his blood shall be on our head, if any hand be upon him. So look, they're accountable if, they're doing what, if they do what they want to do. They're going to pay the price. If they do what we ask and something happens to them, we're accountable. And if thou utter this our business, then we will be quit of thine oath, which thou hast made us to swear. They said again, make sure you do what we say to do. As you see, the responsibility ultimately is going to fall down upon the individual person. But at the same time, there's also some accountability that we saw in these verses back in verse 18 that talks about Rahab's accountability. Realize, she's the one that has the knowledge. She's the one that has the, 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 the interaction with the messenger. She's the one that's convinced. She's the one that's sold. We don't hear anything about her family. But she's got an accountability. What does it say back in verse 18? And thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and thy father's house home unto thee. Rahab, if they're going to survive, it's going to be because you do what I'm asking you to do. You need to have a burden for them. You need to be willing to go tell them the truth. They may not want to receive it. They see all that's going on in the city. They see all the armament. And you're saying, they go, well, okay, okay, okay. So you're saying you met two men. And the city's going to be destroyed? What, they t uh, what proof did they give you? Mm, none. Oh, I mean, did they show you any, anything? Did you see any plans? I mean, do you know these men? No. So you met two guys that told you a story that this whole city's going to be destroyed and we're just supposed to believe you. Yeah. That sounds crazy. 
And when, many times we try to share the faith, share our faith with somebody. We try to tell somebody the gospel, what God somebody did in our life. And somebody comes from the background like I do. And they're like, oh, right, sure. Okay, if you need that crutch in your life, man, God bless you. Hey, man, great. Live it up. I don't need that for my life. That's where I came from. I've talked to plenty of people that are too good for God. But let me just, let me just share with you. The same way Rahab has accountability, all of humanity has accountability to God. Yeah. Right. Amen. Because whether or not we want to admit it or not, God created us. That's right. Look at your DNA. The fact that your DNA is unique. And it takes a mic an electron microscope to see your DNA. And yet, your DNA, one little molecule being out of place, one little, one little chromosome being out of place, can alter everything about you. And we think that somehow happened by accident. Right. That everything functions the way that it does in a perfect system where we have all the food that we need, we have air that we need, we have water that we need. All these things function. We're able to get cut and reproduce and our bodies can heal itself. Our bodies can reproduce themselves. We have the miracle of life. Amen. And we look at physicians and we go, oh yeah, they're all these scientists. They have all this knowledge. Listen, if it were not for the system that God put in place, the greatest healer in the world could not heal a scraped knee. Right. Because guess what? The body heals itself. And it's the arrogance of humanity that makes us think that we're somehow too good for God. Yeah. And you know what? Even though God has every right to strike us dead. Man, if I was God, I'm just telling you, sometimes you get a bad attitude, there would be holes everywhere, man. There would be lightning bolts <laughs> striking all I'd be in traffic just be like, wham, 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 wham. The road's clear, honey. Let's go. Right? That's just the way it is, right? Amen. But yet God is so patient and He's so loving and He looks enough. The Bible uses the word long-suffering. Praise the Lord. Long-suffering. If you've ever dealt with somebody who grates your nerves, and you're just like, man, it's all I got not to knock you out, man. Yes, oh, man. That, you know, and you, but you're just, mm, and you just keep giving them grace. That's long-suffering. And that's God with humanity because we're a bunch of knuckleheads. That's just, that's just the reality. But she had to do it for their sake. She's called, we're called to reach the lost world. Romans 10, 12 says this, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. He's willing to receive anybody. No matter who we are. No matter how broken we may be. No matter how awful life we may have lived and how, how far we've fallen and how badly we've failed. God still loves us. Amen. Because, you know, He doesn't love us for who we are. Right. He loves us for who we can become. Amen. He sees us for our future, not for our present. But understand, salvation is not something that we work for. It's not something that we're going to, to gain through some kind of religious works. It's nothing more than trusting in God and the finished work on the cross. But understand, like Rahab, she could not make them believe. And we can't make people believe. We share our faith. We pour our hearts out. We can cry with people. When I witnessed to my brother for years and years and years and years, I would cry and cry and cry, brokenhearted. With everything I had, I was pouring my heart out to him. And our conversations would end with him going, I don't want to effing talk about this. Wham! And I'd be in the other room in a puddle, brokenhearted for his soul. But you know what? God's faithful. Yes. It took eight years. But God was working all the way across the country and softening his heart. No man cometh to the Father, but no one may come to me, but the Father draw him. And God on my behalf went to my brother Praise the Lord. and brought him. 
to a saving knowledge of Christ. So we can't make them believe. In the end, their responsibility will be on them individually. And it shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of thy house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head. Right? When it comes down to it, we share the truth as believers. We pour our hearts out to people. But in the end, it will be their individual accountability. And what we find in the messengers is they're a picture of the saving power of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the desire of God to see people saved. And when God looked at fallen man, which is amazing, God takes personal accountability. He starts to, on our behalf, He sees us in our broken condition. And because He's burdened for our souls and because He loves us, what does He do? John 15, 13 says, Let's, No greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. So on Easter, what we're celebrating is the day after, right? The three days on the third morning when Jesus resurrected. But understand, three days earlier, He was suffering and dying on a cross innocent with nothing but love for humanity in his heart and the very ones that are torturing him and yelling at him and spitting him, spitting on him he looks with love in his eyes and he says Father forgive them for they know not what they do can we imagine the kind of love that God looks at us and we're living in sin and we're living a life that is absolutely contrary to him and he looks at us and he says Father forgive them for they know not what they do when I was lost and living in the world, you know, drugs, sex, every, all, everything you can imagine to do wrong, I was doing it. And yet God looked at me and He said, Father, forgive him for he knows not what he's doing. Amen. He does not realize who I am. He does not realize that I love him even now. Amen. Long suffering of God. And we see here, as we celebrate today, this is the, this is the, the, the celebration of the death of the burial, the resurrection, man, the victory over death, hell, and the grave, man, the solution, the, the acceptance of God, of the gift that Jesus gave through His own life. Mm. And as we look at this, there's a part, this takes us to something that I want us to look at in Jesus' life. A few days before His, actually the day before His, his death, He was in a little room with His disciples, and they sat down. Matthew 26, verses 17 through 20 says this, now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto Him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? Where should we go eat the Passover? And He said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The Master saith, My time is at hand. Understand, Jesus knows He's going to die the next day. He knows. They don't know. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the even was come, He sat down with the twelve. Keep in mind, remember what the Passover is. It is a foreshadowing of the coming Messiah. And that very Messiah is sitting down to eat a meal that is a prophetic or a shadow of His coming. Pictured in the Exodus, pictured in that window, we saw this redemption of God. And here He is, the Lamb of God, sitting down to eat the Passover. But what's interesting is, of the 1,475 years prior this Passover is going to be very different. Jesus is getting ready to turn things upside down. Because understand, instead of them celebrating what was to come, <laughs> instead they're going to celebrate and celebrate who has come. Amen. Literally, sitting at the table. We're going to celebrate that. Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. Listen to what he says. And as they were eating... 
Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it, everything normal, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, here's where it goes up, this is where it's getting ready to shift, eat, this is my body. Mm. This is no longer a picture of what's to come. This is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. A New Testament. A testament. A testament is what you write. If you have a last will and testament, you write this and you're going to leave this behind. And when you die, now if I open it before you're dead, and I'm like, dude, what am I going to get? Let's check this bad boy out. Yeah. And you're still alive. That's not cool, is it? I'm not going to take your car while you're still alive. But if you left it to me in your, in your, in your last will and testament, well, as soon as you're dead, guess what? It becomes viable in that moment. This is Jesus talking about the fact that, guess what? I'm getting ready to die and everything's getting ready to change. The New Testament is about to happen because I'm going to leave this earth. Jesus took this Passover and turned it on its head, removing the prophetic element of it and pointing to the reality of His arrival. This is why we don't celebrate the Passover. That's why we don't do it now. It doesn't make any sense. It's a, it's a foreshadowing. And there are people right now, there are Christian homes, there are people going out and they're keeping the Passover. And the reason why we don't tell you to do that is because guess what? It no longer means what it used to mean. It no longer means that. G Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he's trying to work with the Christians, uh, the, the, the Christians and these Jews are, they're converted Jews and they're dealing with this society around them. What they're doing is they're being inundated by the Jews. They're going, hey, you've got to keep the Passover. You've got to keep these rules, 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 rules. Right? They're trying to keep them under this Jewish rule. And Paul says, hey, listen, there's a New Testament, guys. Things have changed. And listen to his explanation in Colossians 2.16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, what you eat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath day, which are shadows of things to come. But the body is of Christ. That's a really good song you got there. I like it. <laughs> Since Jesus had come, what happens? We no longer observe the Lord's Supper, but guess what? There's no purpose. Because it was this foreshadowing. So what we did is we took that Lord's that, that switch and we converted it now to the Lord's Supper. And what we do is we do it in remembrance of Him. So this Easter, as we're sitting down and we're celebrating today, we're thinking of our risen Savior. We're thinking about His love for us, what He suffered on our behalf, His desire to see us, to live a life that will bring glory to His name. But we find that salvation has conditionality. And guess what? That same thing, that accountability we talked about. If we did not adhere and they did not adhere to what God called them to do, they face the results. And that individual accountability, man, that's what we're going to wrap up today. John in Isaiah 45, 23. Listen to this. This is what God says. I have sworn... By myself. Listen, when you have, I mean, you can't swear in to anything higher than God. And so God, he can't, he's like, yes, I got nothing above me, so I'm just going to have to swear to myself. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, absolute truth, and shall not return. This is an established fact that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. There is accountability for all of humanity to God. There's accountability. We're all going to face Him. Amen. That is an indisputable fact. But there's another accountability here. And understand, God's been completely transparent with us. What's so awesome about the fact is He's revealed Himself to us. God has given us the mind of Christ. It's the Word of God. It's the mind of Christ. Amen. God tells us what He thinks on every subject. He lets us see His heart. <laughs> he opens Himself up to us. 
And what we find with these messengers is, guess what? They take accountability. They take accountability for the souls of the family. Remember that? And he says, and we will be guiltless, and whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be upon our head, if any man, if any hand be upon him. And if thou utter any, that utter this our business, we will, be quit, we will be quit of thine oath, which thou hast made us to swear. See, God, God made himself accountable for us. We failed. We messed up. We sinned. And yet God bore responsibility on our behalf. So where we have accountability to him, God actually created a system where he has accountability to us. That is unbelievable. We don't deserve that. Not by any stretch of the imagination. He came. He gave his life. He gave everything for us. He made a commitment, an incredible commitment, willing to go to the very end to suffer and die. Praise God because he had a purpose and a plan. 1 Peter 1.15 says this, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. Understand, God says, look, I, I, I made myself accountable to you. Look what I've done. Now I'm asking you to be accountable to me. I'm asking you to live this life for me. Be ye holy as I am holy. Amen. God's saying, look, don't live this life trying to fulfill yourself in your flesh. Try to live it for me because guess what? It's why I created you. I created you for a relationship with me that we might have fellowship and love. Understand the fact that God made this sacrifice for us, but the thing is many times we don't think about what we can sacrifice for Him. That's right. All we're looking for is fulfillment, 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 fulfillment. What can I get? But you know what Jesus' instructions to us in Mark 8.34? to those that would follow him. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny himself. See, what happens is we take what we want and we set it aside. Not my will, but thine be done. The example that Jesus gave us. It's God's desire. And the thing is, we don't do it because we have to. We do it because we get to. Amen. We're blessed to. Amen. We get to give back to God. I get to show God my love. I get to display my love and I get to honor His life, His death, His resurrection, all that He did. I get to honor it through the life that I live. Mm -hmm. We all are given that gift every single day. Every breath of life you're given, you're supposed to live it for His glory. And because we're so selfish, we just think about what we're going to get, what we're going to get, what we're going to get. God loves us and He has a desire to use your life. And the wonderful thing is, when we do live it for Him, instead of seeking fulfillment in the world and always being disappointed, we can finally find fulfillment and a joy. And God calls it this way. He says, it, a peace that passeth all understanding. No one on earth gets it. If you're lost and you have a friend who's saved, and you're like, man, what is up with them? Are they crazy? No. They just have a different perspective on the earth. And where our circumstances are based upon what we see, their circumstances are based upon what they have faith in. Completely different. 1 Corinthians 11, 26-28. As we're preparing for the Lord's Supper today, there is a warning that God gives. And we're going to cover it real quick. 
1 Corinthians 11, 26, then 20, 26 through 28, says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, meaning that their life is polluted with sin, it shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So in observing of the Lord's Supper, we have an opportunity, right? In a moment, we can honor the Lord, right? As we, as we eat that symbolically, a picture of His death, His picture of His blood, and we receive it and make it a part of who we are and we celebrate what He's done. Or we can do it unworthily, meaning that we don't cleanse our hearts. Because if we take it worthily, it means that, you know what, I've made myself right with God. None of us are perfect. Nobody, nobody sitting here is, is a sinless, perfect person. We're righteous through the blood of Christ. It's our surrender of our will to His that makes us, uh, makes it viable for us to receive the supper. But understand, if we have sin in our life and we don't get right with God, and we know we're not right with Him, and we're not surrendered, when we're in, and we're in rebellion, He warns you and says, look, don't partake. Because you're not remembering me. Right. You're eating food. You're making it about you. This is all about, about me. So what we're going to tell you is, do is you're going to take just a couple of minutes. And what we're going to do is we're going to have an opportunity for you to kind of deal with your own heart. And listen, if, if you're not a part of this church and you have no interest in taking communion, hey, just, just watch, observe. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. Don't feel pressured in any way, shape, or form. Because ultimately what happens is when we deal with God, and we bring our hearts to Him. He gives us an opportunity to be blameless before God. And listen, if you're here today and you say, look, I don't know Him. I don't know anything about God. Hey, that's where I was. <laughs> I had never, ever been in church my whole life. I didn't know anything about who Christ was. And when I realized, the fact, that it wasn't some religious thing. It wasn't some, some ceremony that was something. It was nothing more. It was nothing, none of that. It didn't require a preacher or anything special. It was a matter of God was dealing with my heart. As God reached out to us that night, He poured Himself into us. And the thing I heard was the fact this. He said, you know what? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you know what? I knew that to be true. I knew I had sinned. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. What I earned because of sin was, was death. Not only physical death, but spiritual death. And then He said a little, a little further. It says... But God commendeth His love toward us. Commendeth means proved. God proved His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it was like, and then we go back to that verse. It says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The gift! And that's that night, that night when we were at the house. We were offered the gift. And see, the thing with the gift is you can receive it. Hey, or you can reject it. And when I was asked that night, is if Jesus was here and he offered you the gift of salvation, he died for you and you understood who he was and you realized that he loved you, he's willing to forgive you and to give you an eternal life and he was willing to redeem you right now and he offered you that gift, would you receive it or would you reject it? Man, I sat on the couch and I was like, I'm not stupid, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on this bad boy. I'm getting me some of this gift, whatever it is, man. <laughs> I want some. Amen. Because the thing was, 
I'm not promised tomorrow. None of us are. What if that was my last day and I said, no thanks, I'll wait. Man, what a risk to take. But the wonderful thing was, he said, look, Dave, it's not about what you do. It's not about who you are. It's just a matter of faith. Just a matter of faith. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's that simple. Receive him by faith. And that night changed our lives. August 11, 2001. I'll never forget it. Wearing a wife beater t-shirt and a pair of painter shorts. <laughs> Dropped on my knees. Broken and lost. Stood up redeemed. Because of God's love. Mm, thank you. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we do thank you so much for this day. And God, the opportunity you've given us to be in your house. And Lord, I do pray that you'll help us, uh, Lord, right now. Uh, to deal with our own hearts. There are some here that may be lost watching online, and they say, you know what, I don't even know Christ. I want what you got. And uh, Lord, I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive it. But there's others here that are saying, you know what, I am saved. I'm a child of God. What we need to do is take a few minutes, and we need to assess our hearts, check where we stand with God, and make sure that we make ourselves uh, blameless before you. God, thank you for the opportunity you've given us. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today, and you say, look, you know what, I don't know Christ, but I want to. You're online, you're watching, I want to. Understand, he is ready, willing, and able right now. He's calling out to you right now. And as he calls out to you, all you have to do is respond. Just respond. As he speaks to your heart, simply respond. And what he's doing as he's calling out is all it takes from you and I is nothing more than a matter of a prayer, a willingness to surrender our heart to him. So with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to give you that opportunity. This is something private. This is between you and God. I'm going to pray out loud. I'm going to ask you to pray inside your heart, inside your mind. If you want to receive that gift and have a relationship with God because He loves you so much more than you could possibly imagine, you have that time. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to lead you in prayer. Now, it's not the words of this prayer that will do anything for you. If you don't mean it, don't, don't say it. But if you in your heart want to receive Christ, this is all that it takes. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to pray out loud, and I'm going to ask you to repeat in, my, in your heart and your mind and speak to Him. Repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner, and I am sorry for all that I've done. I'm asking you right now, in the best way I know how, to come into my life, to come into my heart, to forgive me of my sin and save my soul. Lord, thank you for saving me. I'm trusting you. I'm turning to you. Help me live for you. Thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.